Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. My guest today is Madison native Michael Massey, the award-winning composer, songwriter, pianist, and performer whose musical resume includes co-founding the bands Chaser and Boys in White, writing the score to the Madison Ballet production Dracula, a rock ballet, being a featured performer in the Mad Cabaret, the Furious Bongos, and Piano Fondue, releasing several solo albums including Be Careful How You Say Pianist, The Present, and Attack of the Delicious, and perhaps his greatest musical accomplishment, one in which I actually played a small part, as a ringer for the legendary garage band Johnny and the Nokomans. He lives with his wife, Robin, in a house they just built on the driftless prairie outside Barneveld, Wisconsin, on land that's been in his family for 11 decades. Mike got drunk for the first time in August 1973 on a trip to Houston with a choir from Trinity Lutheran Church. He would get drunk a lot over the next 20 years before he took his last drink on October 13, 1993. He writes about those 20 years of alcoholism, and the 29 years of sobriety in a moving and powerful memoir entitled More, just out from the good people at Little Creek Press. Along with a number of Michael's lyrics, there are also some great archival photos, including two with Andy Warhol, the subject of one of Chaser's songs. With its narrative of recovery and redemption, it is a very appropriate book to feature as we start a new year. And it is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, my friend, Michael Massey. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Well, well we first of all, we go back a ways. We do. Uh, although I don't think I knew you when you drank. No, probably not. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm probably glad of it, to tell you the truth. Yeah. yeah. You, you, I met you right about the time I was really newly recovering. So, yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on adding the title author to your resume. As I said at your appearance with Maggie Ginsburg at Leopold's the other night, this really is very well written. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who did you write the book for? That's a good question. Um, because I had one of my early critiques in an early draft was somebody said, who are you writing this for? Your wife and daughters. So, <laughs> uh, no, I, I wrote it for myself. I think there was a, a bit of catharsis happening as I relive these things kind of in chronological order. But mostly I wrote it for the person who might be caught in that cycle of, of addiction and, and, and uh, substance abuse to show them that it can be done. It, it can be done. Because I was about as low as a human being can get and it can be done. You can turn your life around. As hopeless as it may seem. And and why now? Why did you write it now? Well, I, you know, as I've said before, uh, I think twenty nine years is a, is a, a duration that perhaps lends a little bit more foundation to a sobriety, and sobriety is an ongoing process. But I can speak from a, a you know three almost three decade long uh, living of it, living of that sobriety. And also the the pandemic gave me the opportunity. I mean, all gigs were canceled and uh, I, I really didn't, I didn't have, I'm otherwise unemployable besides playing piano. So, <laughs> so it gave me the opportunity. Is 29 years different from 25 years, different from 20 years, different from 12 years? Another good question. I guess that's what you do is you ask good questions. Huh? <laughs> uh, yes and no. You know, you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous gives you annual chips, uh, medallions, coins, whatever you want to call them. I call them chips. Um, on uh, to to commemorate your anniversaries of sobriety. You can go on the day that you quit drinking you know, on your 20th or your 25th or, or your, the chip I have kept in my wallet all these years is my 30 day sobriety chip. Because I believe in those 30 days is when 
I really turned my life around. Um, yes and no, because at 29 years, I have hit some some adversity in in my sobriety. Most recently with a, a severe car accident in 2020, where drinking didn't even really occur to me. It didn't occur to me until people asked about my sobriety and not many people did. Because like you, most people in my life right now don't remember me as a drinker. They just know me as, as I am now. Um, I don't, knock on wood, like I say, it's an ongoing process. I don't think actively about drinking. I don't have cravings. I don't, I, I don't think about it alleviating stress or pressure um, like I did in really early recovery. But one of the recurring themes in this book is making that decision and flipping that switch. By flipping that switch, it's just not an option anymore. So in that respect, 29 is no different than one for me because I just looked forward and I said, this, this is the way I'm going to live my life now. What did you wrote in the book about flipping the switch? What did you mean that you knew you were on the road to recovery when you flipped the switch? It was an unburdening Stu. It was, it was, it's so hard to describe because after all of that time, after, after 20 years, actively at least five of them saying, I'm going to quit. I got to quit. I'm going to quit. Actively three of them saying that every day to myself, I'm going to quit tomorrow. Fighting that demon and, and putting it behind me, flipping, flipping the switch, put that all behind me and allowed me to look forward. It's that simple and that difficult to flip the switch. Uh, to, to just turn, completely do a 180 and turn your, your mind around to that's not an option for me. If I'm gonna continue living, if I'm gonna continue growing and creating, that life of mine is behind me. I am only going to look forward. And it's a weight lifted off your shoulders. It's an unbelievable weight. Once, once it's not something you have to think about, once you've made the commitment to yourself, it's like, okay, this, this is who I am now. I don't have to think about it anymore. Right, right, right. It, it, I think it's a key to all substance abuse. I think it's a key. I wish that I could find it for everyone. And I'm sure that everyone's is different. Everyone's switch, you know. You mentioned keeping the uh, Alcoholics, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous chip. I get the sense that part of your sense is you don't entirely buy into some of the AA concept about reliving the badness. You you want to reinforce the good things. Are, are you entirely one on one with the AA, or do you dis or you do you differ on how some of the treatment should go? I think that recovery is a very, very personal journey. I think that everyone's recovery is probably different. I would never, ever disparage AA for all of the good they have done for millions of people. I do not agree with some of the things that, that they, that they uh, portray. Um, I, I don't agree with, I, I, there's a pretty dramatic chapter in the book talking about my last AA meeting as an active participant with a bunch of old guys sitting around talking about all of these horrific things that happened to them or that they did to others. And it made me want to drink. And I got up from the table and left. Um, so I, I differ. I also differ in the opinion of making amends with people. If you have wronged somebody so deeply, uh, they have likely put it behind themselves to move forward. So in order for some cheap absolution, I don't think that we have the right to go back and apologize to someone. Other than those, you know, they're, they're relatively major tenets, but uh, 
most of the things that are in, that are in AA are obviously designed to help people, and and so in 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 that respect, we're on the same page. It can be somewhat self-indulgent to re-enter somebody's life after twenty years and and bring up something that you did to them that they may very well have put in their past and and not thought about for twenty years. Right. Exactly. Exactly. One of the chapters in the book is the text of a Capital Times article from 1997 by Natasha Kosolke about your rise and fall and, and rise again. This was a four years into your sobriety. Did that plant the seed of someday telling the full story yourself? Yeah, it it, it really did. In in finding that article and my my first editor, Matt Gannett, you know, his his whole <laughs> in, in just about every margin, he said, show me, don't tell me. So he said, I want to see the article. I want to see, I want to see that article. So uh, yeah, yeah, it did. And, and you know, a lot of the things in that article are kind of an outline for, for the book itself. But it also gave me the first opportunity to become transparent. It gave me the first opportunity to really be public with my story, which I also think is relatively important to recovering from substance abuse. And addiction. I mean, if someone, if you're completely transparent about your struggles and and your sobriety, it, it's out there for the world to see, and easier to keep going in it, and harder to be deceptive. So, I mean, if if someone is still being secretive about their substance abuse you know, shyness or personality traits notwithstanding, it's a lesser chance of success, I think. Yeah, once you're in the newspaper or the magazine about being four years sober, it makes it a lot harder to suddenly backslide and, and go out to a bar and have a drink. Right. How did you settle on the title? Well, I sure have realized since I titled this book, how many times we say more in the English language. <laughs> popping up here everywhere there are a lot of definitions and i think that's one of the reasons why i settled on the title i wrote a song in 2014 that is autobiographical and, and it's one of my favorite songs that i've ever written it's not a pop song it's a very emotional song so that was the the, the initial use of the title but there really is so much more to life if you're if you're caught in the throes of of alcoholism you can delude yourself into thinking that you're doing this or you're doing that or you're working toward this when in reality, you're really not. The things in your life take on a new meaning. The things in your life take on a new hue, so to speak, with sobriety. So there's more than what's, what meets your perception if, if, you, if you go forward into sobriety. And, and as you know, the, the very end of the book, I don't, I don't wanna give that away, but that's also another definition of of using the, the title more. How satisfying was it to be able to include lyrics in the book? Extremely satisfying. I believe that it's used in most places, much like a Broadway musical, to uh, to advance the story itself as well. And I'm really looking forward to doing the audiobook, which is my January and February project. And actually including the songs in the audiobook. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. I am not a big drinker, but it is my understanding that when people drink too much, they often cannot remember what happened the night before. You are writing about things that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. You obviously were not keeping a journal back then. How were you able to write in such detail about events from that long ago? Uh, it's a blessing and a curse. My father, who was in the auto business his entire life, could tell you about a car he sold in 1972, how many miles were on it and who was the previous owner. Uh, so I, I inherited his memory. I love the fact that I can remember things so vividly. Earlier this morning, I saw a poster of a band from 1979 and it showed a number of clubs that we played as well in Chaser. I literally went through those clubs and I could tell you where the stage was in the club, what kind of carpeting was on the stage and where the bar was in the room from standing on the stage now in, in, in 2022. 
another trick that Matt Gannett gave me, and, and it gave me more detail on some things, is to picture yourself in a 360 degree circle. And if you're in a certain event, what was happening in front of you? What was to your left? What was to your right? And what was behind you? What was visible? And so then those things opened up the memory even more as a writing exercise. Quite frankly, I sat down and wrote this. I just kept writing and writing and writing and writing because they're all stories that I have told for 30 years, 40 years, all now all in one place. My memory, it's just astounding. There are some areas, early 90s start getting a little fuzzy, but I can remember late 70s more easily than I can early 90s. See, I'm, I make a point of not trying to remember too much stuff. Uh, you're not the only one. I, I had somebody else say that to me just recently. I've been blessed with a lot of really wonderful adventures in my life, so I'm glad that I can remember them and I can remember them well. And, and remembering some of the bad, even though, you know, I don't, I don't dwell upon the bad. There's a difference between remembering bad things that happened and dwelling on them. Remembering the bad things and remembering the hallucinations in my, in my uh, withdrawal and keeping them relatively fresh in memory is also a deterrent. It, it's, it's also something to, to not repeat. You know, who, who said those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it? You know, uh, the, the, the philosopher George Santayana. Okay, you would know that. That's why. I... Or, 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 or as I paraphrase it, those who don't understand history are condemned to not understand how ironic it is when it repeats itself. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> We're talking with Michael Massey. His, his book, his memoir is called More, and it certainly is that. Speaking of those memories, a lot of these stories are embarrassing, even painful to read. How painful was it to relive them? You've obviously been reliving them for a while, but how painful was it to actually write them and share them with people? Well, I think the jury might be out on that, depending on how people react to, to it and me afterward. But uh, like I said, if I can help people by being transparent with my past and my mistakes and, and just the ridiculousness of some of the things, then so be it. It's my life. I've lived it. I'm not going to run away from it. I would rather embrace it and try to make people aware of the fact that you can completely change. So that's why I wanted to be dramatic. That's why I wanted to put the, the, the stuff that is cringeworthy in there because everybody's got a few things at least in their past that are cringeworthy. I just own it. I'll just own it. I've, I've, got, I've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Well, before you started on the book, other than an instant like you'd see a poster of a club you played, how often would you think about your past, especially these kinds of embarrassing incidents? With all of these stories, and there are many, many more, there, see, there, there it is again, the word more, it always gets triggered by something. If, if I get, especially from somebody that I knew back in the day, if we started talking about something it would trigger story after story and then that story would trigger another story because my memory is so sharp i would think about those things often which i think also made it easier to write well Stuart, you certainly have the questions don't you a couple of instances come to mind besides wishing i could have performed better and in moments that could have furthered our career. The two relationships that come to mind are first having dinner with Cameron Crowe in Hollywood. I was 19 years old. I was in an environment that I, one could only have dreamt of mere months before. And uh, Cameron at the time was a very active writer for Rolling Stone. And Rick, our manager, knew him because he had done articles on some chrysalis artists for Rolling Stone. And so we had what was a very casual dinner, but I had to act like uh, the rock star I wasn't. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that he was put off by my false bravado and driven, of course, by drinking too much. I say this in the book, but years later, I 
when I saw Almost Famous and realized what a sincere guy he was when he was younger, because he's only a year or two older than me, I think. And we were both 19 or 20 at, at the time of our, of our dinner. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying that I would have become great friends with him, but I at least could have made a better impression, a, a sincere impression, and, and been the guy that I really was down deep as opposed to putting up a false front. The other one would be meeting Andy Warhol. And I, and I uh, while such an incredible opportunity, and, and I'm so grateful that it happened in my life, I wish that I would have had more knowledge of his work to be able to have a substantive conversation with him. That one wasn't really ruined by alcohol, but it was ruined by the naivety of, of a Midwestern boy that really didn't know the ways of the world and pretended he did, which was a side effect of too much drinking. In addition to the events themselves, you are really very hard on your younger self, not just in detailing the number of times you sabotage various opportunities and, and relationships, but even on your character, you use terms like ignorant selfishness, self-absorption, misguided arrogance, unwarranted false confidence. Did you take some kind of pleasure in beating yourself up like that? Now, there's a question nobody's asked me. No, it wasn't pleasure. It, it wasn't pleasure, but there, there's a certain redemption, you know, from, from that guy. I mean, I, I was alcohol-fueled, that ego, but so did our circumstances, so did our management, you know, building me up to be this this unapproachable, bigger-than-life character that I just found myself living every day that took a long time to tear down. And now that I've torn him down, I, li I, like, I like the 2022 version of myself way better. And, you know, I, I want younger people to see that, maybe see a little bit of themselves in it, although if they're as arrogant as I was, they won't. But uh, I have met some younger musicians, you know, in the last few years that are a lot like I was, and I find myself really not liking them. I mean, I, I to almost to the point where I won't even listen to their music because they are exactly what I was. And I wish that I could shake them and, and say, oh my God, wake up, this is not gonna get you anywhere. So yeah, I like beating him up. I like beating him up because he deserves it, you know? Could you have been the performer you were in those early years without the alcohol? You were, you were a strutting peacock with teased up hair and, and various outfits, you know, doing the front man thing. Could you have been that guy without the alcohol? In that time period, probably not. Like I say, it all fed into itself. And it was an era where the performers in 10,000 seaters were holding up bottles of Jack and drugs were so plentiful. And I mean, there were people lining up outside the dressing room to give us drugs on break and after the show. And thankfully I didn't really get involved in too many drugs. Alcohol was kind of my drug of choice, but uh, it was, it was, it was omnipresent. When I first performed sober, it was really difficult. It was really difficult to find things to say to the audience because I realized how off the cuff that alcohol allowed me to be. And when you're drinking with the audience, you're 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 they're one of they're with you and you're one of them. Um, so there was this imaginary wall that I built in, in front of myself. So it was it was harder to have discourse with the audience. So to answer your initial question, probably not. And I doubt very much if, if, if at all, you could count on one hand, the number of sober shows I performed with Shaser. So. So what was it like? You, you've had a couple of reunions with Chaser since then, uh, some for Joey's songs, some for some other activities. Is it at all disassociative for you to re-inhabit that musical persona 
but not be that same person. No, it was it was it was glorious, to be honest. It was just the opposite. It was it was, it was glorious to to still really love the music, to still really love it, to be able to perform it better, to be able to perform it with a clear head. Uh, age has has dropped my vocal range from stuff that was already too high as a young man. So it was a little harder to, to sing, but uh, we did do an album in, uh, in 2019. And uh, that was just a joy to do. It was a joy to really concentrate on the music. And, and the, you know, the players have, have been lifelong friends. They've seen me through it all. And to be, to be with them again is, is just, it's like I say in the book, it's like coming home. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Can people who aren't in bands understand what that is like to be in a band with a bunch of people who are usually going to be guys your age and do it for years and years and decades and, and have the musical and emotional and intellectual bonds that develop over your whole lifetime? Do, 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 do civilians understand that, what that's like? There's got to be parallels in other things. I mean, you know, people that, although these days people don't really stay at companies for an entire career. Uh, um, there's got to be parallels. I mean, lifelong, I am so blessed with a number of lifelong friendships, most of which have been cultivated through music. Even my early, early bands, I'm still the best of friends with guys that I played with at 15. Work, working in a cubicle next to somebody for 30 years is not the same as going on tour and living in a van for, for, for three months and, and having those immediate experiences that are closer than, I mean, it's, it's, it's a marriage, it's, it's a brotherhood, it's a bond because you've got this shared mission and you're all in it together and you rise or fall together and you, you experience these things together that, you know, we see you for two hours on stage, but, you're together for 22, 24 hours a day. Right. Yeah. So maybe there, maybe it's a, it's a pretty unique experience. There's a difference also in, in music when you have that shared mission, as you said, than when you're just trying to make it a business and, and make a living. There's, there's a real, real shift when your mindset becomes, oh, I can actually pay my rent doing this as opposed to chasing a, a, a record deal. So yeah, there, there are a lot of facets to it. Well, speaking of those record deals, you came close to grabbing the brass ring a couple of times. How often do you play What If and If Only? Our, our answers usually are, my good friend Mike Ripp, and I talk about, you know, the, the missed opportunities with Chaser. But our, our conclusions usually are that we would be dead. We would probably be dead because of the time period and the excesses that were happening already. You add the pressure of labels and you add the pressure of constant touring at a higher level and all of that. And uh, we would have driven ourselves right into the ground and be dead. Therefore, my marriage wouldn't exist and neither would my daughters. So that's the conclusion we come to, partially maybe to assuage our, our egos about not making it. But I, I truly believe that that it, might, it, it would have been a shooting star. It would have flamed out and uh, probably not in a very good way. Musically, was Chaser the right band at the wrong time? I do believe that. I do. I, I truly believe that. I believe that if we had been able to work with better producers at the time and uh, utilize the best technology that we could have, uh, if it would have been a little earlier, we would have been included in glam rock in the mid seventies, early mid seventies. If we'd been a little later, we would have been with the hair bands of the eighties. But but more complicated and, and have more substance than most of that music. So yeah, I think the time, the timing, the, we, we fought punk and new wave, uh, the urban cowboy craze in the late seventies. We, uh, 
just just all all of the, what we were doing was just a few years off and i just i recently talked to chaser's manager and he said nobody of any substance was really signed in the time period we were trying to get signed this is g- give me the years that that he's talking about 78 79 and 80. okay well i mean is it- they're gonna have superstars but but i mean as far as the volume of music that were that was before it and after it there was like this dead zone of of split genres and and all of these things and there was there was no concentrated like like the early 90s you know when grunge hit you know there were there were these these huge acts that were signed there was not that in the the very late 70s and early 80s and that's also right on the cusp of the technological or or the the change where you get MTV coming in and i've always felt that the band uh, Snowpeck, if they had gotten on, onto MTV, if they had been a, a year or two later and gotten onto MTV with First Band on the Moon, they'd have blown up and, and been huge for generations. But they just missed, they, they're just like two, two years too early for that, that medium. I agree completely. And the other part of that is, is that if you start doing what's current, you're too late. So you need to stay true to yourself and hope that your timing works. I think the oddest part of the musical narrative is how an executive from Chrysalis Records takes such an interest in you while you are working security at a Jethro Tull concert at the Coliseum in 1977, that he not only comes to Chaser's show the next night in Mount Horeb, but he works with you extensively for years. Did you ever ask him why he took such an immediate and strong interest in you and the band? I think part of it was the road itself. You know, part of it was the road. Rick was only a year or two older than we were. He was a wonder kid. He came out of college and went to the West Coast and and got director of national publicity for Chrysalis and did a really good job. Their roster at the time included Blondie, The Babies, Jethro Tull, Robin Trower, um and he just he jumped right into it he wanted he wanted to be a brian epstein you know that's that's what that's what his dream was so he saw that possibility in us he saw this raw product young guys i mean 19 years old when we met him and uh i can mold these guys i can take these guys i can make them the stones or i can make them whatever and he he did his best. He, he he tried really, really hard and gave us influences that we never would have had as early as we had them, which made Chaser kind of special in the Midwest because we were we were on the trends and 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 not only fashion-wise and, and music of the coasts as, as opposed to what was happening in the Midwest at the time, which was REO and Sticks. Are you still in touch with him? Not as much as I'd like. Um, I did talk to him recently. He lives in Florida now. His his, his uh, health is a little bit questionable. I'm going to make a and COVID kind of kind of stopped that. I'm going to make a trip down there and visit him as soon as it's uh, completely safe to do so. I'm just going to I'm going to make a dedicated trip. Have you sent him the book? And I sent him the a rough manuscript, and didn't hear anything back. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> hmm. Back to the drinking. Wisconsin has a well-established drinking culture, but not everybody becomes an alcoholic. Do you understand why you did? Mine was tenfold. You know, I hereditarily it's in my family. My maternal grandfather was was a hopeless alcoholic, and he he went to. They say they talk about it in, in family lore. He went away for two weeks and came back sober. In reality, he went away for two weeks and quit drinking and came back a dry drunk for the rest of his life. But uh, it, it's all over on both sides of my family. So hereditarily, it's 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 a bad thing. But just being in that time period in music and being in music itself where alcohol was free every night, I think you develop a dependency unknowingly. And then all of a sudden, it, it's there. All of a sudden, it gets you. 
but when you're 19 and 20, drinking beer is second nature, especially in, in the upper Midwest, you know, it's that, that's just, that's what you do. I could, I could drink much bigger people under the table than I was just because of uh, practice, I guess. <laughs> but, and, and your drink of choice was? I, well, I drank a lot of beer, but my drink of choice is towards the end that damn near killed me was brandy. For the um, sugar? For the sugar, I'm sure, yeah. I still eat way too much candy to this day to compensate for it, so. Well, you've obviously got a high enough metabolism that you're not you're not holding it in, so. I'm lucky that way. <laughs> Besides just the, the social aspect of being in a bar and being in a club and having people buy you drinks, was there a connection between alcohol and the creativity of music? one always thinks that you think you think that it's it's fueling your creativity and it was probably the biggest deterrent for me to stop drinking is 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 the fear that i would lose my creativity i would lose my sense of melody i would lose that ability to take chances musically and uh, it, it couldn't be farther from the truth the truth is, is that creativity is, is so much more explosive in sobriety. And if, and if people would trust me on that, uh, there would be a lot more sober musicians. You talked about sense of melody. Is melody and ability to write melodies what you regard as your strongest musical attribute? I think yes. I think, yeah, I, I, I can whether it be a pop song or advertising or whatever I've done in my life and, and, and Dracula finding those melodic themes, it, it's hard to describe because it, sometimes it just pours out. And, and then I sit back and go, wow, did I do that? And so it's, it's when it's, when it's, when I surprise myself, there is no feeling like it. It's, it's uh, but yeah, you can, somebody once said, you could, there's melodies are all around you just to pick one out of the air. And, and sometimes that feels like I do that. Can you, how do you train yourself to do that better or can't you? I think the, the thing that you could train yourself to do better is, is to not be too critical of an initial idea. Um, you know, a perfectionist would say, oh, that's not good enough. But the, a rough idea will sometimes turn into something so much better as long as you can you can you can capture that rough idea and in in a form and then go back and revisit it and say oh well then I'll take this here and then all of a sudden it rises uh being more open i, I think is what you could train yourself to but as far as melodies i don't know if any amount of music of theoretical knowledge or I think probably studying melodies and just playing a ton of music would give you a sense of melody. So I think it, it, it develops over time. When you, when you don't have an actual project that you're working on that you have to compose something for, how often do you sit at the piano and just play and see what happens? Well, not enough recently. Uh, since our accident, I, I, uh, I haven't done that up until that point. Now that I have my new room and now that I've got more time now, <laughs> whose bright idea was it to try to release a book at Christmas? That, that, <laughs> um, I'm going to do it again. I, I just recently got some new orchestral plugins for my Mac and I can't wait to create with them because they sound so incredibly real. So I'm, I'm excited about where that's going to go. Um, yeah, I'm going to do another album in, in 2023. I've got a lot of finished songs that are in demo form and some that are half finished that I'm really excited about. And I'm going to take I'm going to take more musical chances with this than I ever have before. So I'm looking forward to that. What does it mean to have orchestral plugins for your Mac? That means that I can play the keyboard and I can have a violin or a cello or a string section or a full orchestra and it, these sound so incredibly real. It just, it makes the hair on your arm stand up. So it, I can't wait.
how would that have facilitated writing the score for Dracula? Well, I had that a lot of that. Not as good, not as good as they are now. Um, if I had some of the tools I have now, I don't know that it would have changed melodically. Now I'm thinking about too recording the entire thing with, with, uh, with those sounds, with those really accurate sounds, as opposed to the live recording which exists. I'd like to to do it, at least in part, uh, some of the pieces, with a full production, so it would sound actually like an orchestra. Plus, a dream of mine is is to uh, have one of the Dracula pieces at Concerts on the Square. Is the orchestral plugin that you're talking about different from a synthesizer? Yeah, a synth. Uh, well, a synth is is more electronic music. You can control the oscillators and and change the tonality and decay and attack and release of the sound itself. The plugins you have control over them a little bit, but they are literally samples of a recording of that violin or of that 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 orchestra on a soundstage. Like one of my plugins is uh, uh, Orchestral Tools, which is a recording of the Berlin Symphony. So uh, when I have French horn and violin and I, and I press the C key, I'm hearing a French horn and violin recorded on a soundstage in Berlin. So do you have uh, to credit them when you release an album? Well, there's got to be something in the uh, in all of the licensing, you know. This is a whole nother aspect of what the musicians today have to do, especially guitarists. That the technology, in addition to just understanding the musicality and and the skill set of where your fingers go at what time, understanding the technology above and beyond just the musicality. That's a whole nother level that you guys have to deal with. I'm lucky that piano was my main instrument because. That gives me so many things at my fingertips. It's just, it's just so many things. There's probably not an instrument that can't be emulated on a keyboard. Let's go back to October, 1993. What were the circumstances of that last drink? Well, I was living in a whole apartment on uh, Simpson Street when Simpson Street was uh, one of the worst neighborhoods in the city with a with a, an ex musical partner of mine whose wife had all, all also thrown him out and it was you know it was gnawing on me i was i was drinking i was reaching under the bed for a bottle whenever i became conscious so i was i was drunk 24/7 trying to maintain you know some some semblance of sobriety which is where you get when you when you get that low in the cycle is is drinking a substantial amount of brandy just to, so you don't shake. Um, it was it was all it like I had said just a bit ago. It started wearing on on me for three years. I was caught in this cycle of drinking to to feel normal, and it was just becoming so exhausting. And saw something flickering on the drapes of this second floor apartment that we were in and uh, opened the drapes and there was a car burning in the parking lot and people standing around it like they were being entertained by this fire that was engulfing this car. And I called the fire department and the fire department didn't come for 20 minutes because even though they were a block away because it was Simpson Street. And uh, it, it, was, it was an epiphany to me to really look at that and say, at that moment, it was, what have you done? What what have you done? You're throwing away a marriage. You're you're drinking around the clock. This needs to stop now. This just needs to stop now. Um, so, in essence, that was probably a precursor to actually flipping my switch. Was that epiphany? But I called called my wife Robin and said, "Can I come home?" And of course, she heard that before and gave me a couple of days to, to stew in it and see if uh, if I could indeed not drink for at least a couple of days and then she allowed me to come home and then four days after that last drink is when I went into acute withdrawal 
four days. I was so drunk. Doctor said every cell in my body was drunk. See, I looked up delirium tremens just to, and it, that what you underwent was classic. It, two to three to four days after your last drink, you go through withdrawal and you suffered and you suffered a classic case. And on October 16th, if you had known that this was coming, would you have dealt with it better? Oh, I knew it was coming. I just didn't know how bad it was going to be. Because I, you know, I had withdrawn a few times. I'd gone through shakes, but never to the point of, I don't think that I had built up enough residual. Uh, I mean, I don't even know what my blood alcohol content was. I wish I could find that out. It had to have been three, three to four. It had to have been. And five is death. Yeah, if I would have known it was going to be that bad, I think I would have checked myself into the hospital because if I wouldn't have made it, I, I would have died. My, they said my heart would have exploded. They had to fill me so full of Valium and Haldol when I got to the hospital to stop my heart that was beating out of my chest and, and, and try to stabilize me. Um, I don't know if people realize that you can die from withdrawal from alcohol. It's the only drug that, that withdrawal will kill you from. Heroin's a bad withdrawal, but it's not gonna kill you. Did you know on October 13th that you, were that you had taken your last drink? I don't know if I was completely perceptive of that thought. I mean, that was my hope. You know, at that moment it's like, oh God, I've got to change my life and, and I've got to go get, get back home with my wife whom I still loved very much at that time. Um, I don't think that that wasn't the, the, the seminal moment of, of my sobriety. That was the beginning of it. I had to go through the withdrawal. I had to, to wake up in a hospital bed and, and, and as I wrote in that journal, I wrote in my journal, uh, boot camp for life. When I wrote the sentence, boot camp for life is when I believe that I knew it was my last drink. Because that was the mindset. I want to ask about that journal in a second, but do you, what was the last drink? I believe it was, a, it, well, it was out of the bottle of brandy and, and a beer, you know. Just, I mean, a drink out of that fifth, straight out of the bottle. <laughs> yeah, I didn't bother with mixer, you know, I mean. Uh, why, why water it down? I didn't bother with a glass, so, you know. About a week later, on the day you're going to move from the hospital to the residential treatment facility, you write in the journal that Robin had given you, quote, God snatched me back from the brink of death I will find a way or ways to justify his decision. Had you always had that personal connection to the divine or was this something new that came along with what you sense was gonna be your recovery? I grew up in a very religious household. My mother till her death was a very devout woman and, and very respected in the church community. I gave my adolescence and teen years to Trinity Lutheran Church. I was, I taught Sunday school. I was in the youth group. I was in the choir uh, until I went on the road with Chaser for the first time and came back after a few months gone and found a letter on my parents' mantle saying I was no longer a member of Trinity Lutheran Church because I hadn't given them enough money. So that soured me on organized religion. Uh, I truly believe that when I wrote that passage in the journal, that dark, silent morning in intermediate care in the hospital, that I was drawing upon the faith that I grew up with. Uh, and I was feeling that faith. I believe that a person's faith and religion is a very personal thing and a complicated thing. But yes, my, my faith definitely got, got me through the early days of, of sobriety, which are, are, are chaotic to say the least. When you came back after that week, that weekend furlough and they thought your urine was dirty, they almost kicked you out until you protested so vociferously that they finally believed you. How frantic were you at the thought that 
you might have been kicked out at that point. I think that's probably why I wasn't, is, is how frantic I was and how much I wanted to stay. I mean, they had to have seen that. I mean, it was working for me. I, I, I wanted to complete this before I took that next step. I wanted to make sure that I was on as firm a ground as I possibly could be. You know, now thinking back on that in retrospect, I think that's probably the biggest reason why they believed me. I mean, if, if I used, I would, I would not have wanted to come back. If I, if I used and I came back and I was just going through the motions, I'm sure that they could tell that. I'm sure that that's something that, that would be telegraphed, you know. Would you have made it if they kicked you out? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I believe to this day that I had a perfect storm of recovery. I think that everything worked in tandem. I think that everything that happened to me was, was really a beautiful progression of things. Uh, two weeks after I left there, they banned smoking cigarettes. And it, it was just as important to me to sit in that kitchen and smoke cigarettes with all these people that were searching, searching for their lives uh, as it was being in the classroom. I mean, the conversations we had were priceless. We all knew each other's secrets. I think it's because we were strangers and I think that's because we had this, this shared time together. You approach your job as a musician differently now than you did in your 20s and 30s? your teens and 20s and 30s? Absolutely. In 1994, when, when I was, when I finally quit the uh, furniture store, which, which I was terrible at, it became a vocation. Music became a vocation and a way of life that allowed me to generate income and still be creative and do just a myriad of things under that umbrella as opposed to that tunnel vision of chasing rock stardom. Yeah, it's a, it's a completely different thing. And then in, in the 90s with, with our friend Harvey's help, I got into the advertising world and that, that opened my eyes to other ways of generating income and being creative. Speaking of rock stardom, your eldest daughter, Emily, is the singer in the band, in the indie rock band Slowpulp, which is going to tour Europe in March, opening for Death Cab for Cutie. Were you at all concerned when she showed signs of wanting to be a professional musician? Emily's had her own path. She was a very, very, very good ballet dancer in her youth. Uh, injured her back at 16 and could no longer dance. Uh, she was, she was, I don't want to say prodigious, but she was, uh, she was close. She had, Ballet Chicago wanted her to come down and join the company at 16 years old. Uh, she had the right Balanchine body. She had everything, uh, really going for her. Uh, so when that creative outlet disappeared for her, she joined a band. My daughters have seen, have grown up in a house without alcohol. My daughters have... My transparency has always been there with them. We've always been open in conversation about alcohol. So, no, I wasn't concerned. I knew that she had an amazing talent and, and an incredibly unique voice. Her chances of being successful as an artist in the music business, I felt were probably higher than my own. Uh, and that's that's coming true now. I, I was lucky enough to record her vocals for their upcoming album here in this room that we're that I'm sitting in uh, just uh, in September and October. I think that this next album could could propel them to the next level, whatever that may be in this streaming streaming rock and roll world. But uh, they're sitting now at 70 million streams on their on their catalog and 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 rising, one one point two or three million average streams a month. So they're, they're really doing it and they're a really good band, but I've also regaled her with stories of my failures and, I, and I've taught her how not to be. I've, I've tried to teach her to be Emily, to really be herself. And that has really helped them to this point. 
you you also write about your other daughter Anna being something of a performing savant at a very young age. Uh, were you surprised she hasn't pursued a career like this? Yeah, yeah, and it's not off the table. I mean, she actually just wrote a bit of a song just a few weeks ago and sent me an MP3 of something she had done, and it was absolutely fantastic. So when she comes home from Phoenix, I think we're going to put that, we're going to record that and and see. I, I think Anna just needs a jump start. I think she's a little bit afraid of the technology that she has at her fingertips uh, that would allow her to do that. And if we can get her over the hump of either Logic or Pro Tools and, and get her working on on stuff on her laptop, I think that the, the floodgates would open. So, uh, and her music is is in the other side of the musical spectrum from her sisters. So it, it, it and they, they sing so beautifully together too, which is, of course that might be parental, but. Uh, I see a remake of the Partridge family happening here. <laughs> so we could all be faking our instruments. Yeah. You referred a couple of times to the accident, March 1st, 2020, another life altering event. You and Robin are at a stoplight on South Stoughton Road, and you get rear-ended by an old man who slams into you at 50 miles an hour. You were hurt pretty badly. Robin was hurt much worse. Which was harder to write about, your alcoholism or Robin's injuries? Robin's injuries, without hesitation. That, you know, and that's one of those things where I wish memory would fail me. Because I, re I retained consciousness through the entire crash. I, I remember the actual impact. I remember the, the seat breaking backwards. I remember, because then we hit a car that was in front of us at the stoplight. So then I flew up and hit the windshield and broke the windshield with my head. Uh, but stayed conscious through the entire thing. And then sat in the seat for a few seconds, just completely stunned. Like, what the hell just happened? But, but to see Robin slumped over the steering wheel next to me, and unconscious, I didn't know if she was alive or dead. And that moment, I, I wish that I could forget, and I can't. For the longest time after that accident, I would hear the pitch of the crash. I would hear the sound of the crash, and it made my scalp crawl. I could, it, it would just, I would hear the pitch. And it, I can't even describe that any better than that. It's just my, literally my scalp would crawl. I didn't know what our life was even gonna be. I know that when they took her away in the ambulance, she had, no sensation below her chin in the ambulance. She didn't have any sensation in her extremities until they put a halo on her and straightened her neck in the ER at UW hospital. You know, the, the, the ending is good because we're both walking and, and able to function, but, but Robin's uh, limited in her mobility and always will be because of the accident. But I'm just so grateful that we're alive that was that was a really difficult chapter to write, but I felt like it was an important chapter to write. And that's when I was talking about earlier, only two people reached out to me to ask about my sobriety after that. And uh, it was very touching that they did, both of which recovering themselves, wondering how such a horrific incident would affect my thoughts on sobriety. And uh, I happily can say that it never even crossed my mind to relapse. We talked about the number of cringeworthy aspects you write about. There's also one part of your life that readers will be envious of, and that is the love you have for your wife, Robin. Do you realize how lucky you are? Oh, yes. I, I realize every single day how lucky I really, really am. One of the most glorious and comprehensive results of, of ongoing recovery from addiction is feeling that gratitude, feeling the gratitude, being in the moment and realizing how lucky you are every single day with everything that you have. When, you, when you're as low as, as a human being can go and there's nowhere to go but up, even the smallest things you can be grateful for. Uh, I'm, I am so incredibly fortunate to be able to say that I love Robin more now today than I did when we married. Uh, and we tell each other that every single day. We tell each other how lucky we are to have found each other. To find a partner with whom you can grow old gracefully together and change, as everyone does, together is 
in the grand scheme of things, the odds are aren't the greatest. They're fifty percent, and I, I've I've hit upon those odds too. I often say that I have won the life lottery, and there's no doubt about that. I I have the 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 greatest prize in the history of lotteries with Robin Valley Massey. Was one of the attractions to writing the book that it lets you write about Robin and how much she means to you? Without a doubt. I have, for 29 years, I have told anybody who would listen to me how much Robin's support and love had to do with my sobriety. To have that support is is a priceless commodity to have someone waiting for you on the other side of of that expansive despair you can't you can't put a value on it it's invaluable i it gave the writing the book gave me the opportunity to actually show people the the depth and gravity of what robin endured to continue to support me through my worst times, and then to celebrate that 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 support, how it manifested itself later in our lives, to become what we have now. Um, life is a long game, folks. It's a it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint, and the, the book illustrates that in in graphic detail. Yes, it. it not only did it give me an opportunity to write about how much Robin means to me, but also how much a partner and 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 not even a partner, so to speak, but the support of loved ones and friends and family can be to the person that's afflicted. And that is something that we we need to keep in mind. And one of the questions that was asked to me at my author event uh, at Leopold's was, when do you give up on someone who doesn't want help? And my answer was never. I was given so many chances by, by so many people until I was finally successful. And it's the same with everybody and their struggle and their journey. Um, great question, Stuart. Well, thanks very much. A good book deserves good questions. Of all your musical iterations, Chaser, Boys in White, doing the score for Dracula, performing as Fabrizio at the Mad Cabaret at the Slipper Club, writing jingles, your solo work, piano fondue. What has given you the most artistic satisfaction? I think that the, you know, the the energy and idealism of youth would would lead me to be a knee-jerk reaction, say Chaser. Um, Chaser was a conglomeration of all of our musical tastes, and it was really a, a a beautiful unit. And we we had some wonderful creativity. You know, uh, I think that I'm blessed for all of it. I mean, every everything that I have done, some things couldn't be more different than the other, is just a blessing. Working with Earl Smith on Dracula was was an incredibly creative time. I don't know that I would put one over the other if you really got in depth with it. The ability to do any of it is is a blessing. And and I've just been, I've, I've just had a kind of a, a charmed existence in that way. And where does writing this book place on that list of accomplishments? That's a really interesting question. And as you know, I've got I've got a problem calling myself a writer. Because of the fact that I have spent my life trying to become a better musician every day, I still try to become better every day. And I know that people spend their lives trying to become better writers. When I, when I have feedback, when I have positive feedback on this book, when, when I have somebody say, oh, what a, what a great accomplishment and all these things, it's such a foreign world to what I've been acc- accustomed to my life that I don't know how to react to it. I really don't know how. I, maybe that will change as, as time goes on. And I'm really in this more for a long game with this book than this is my current release and I'll have another one next year. This will likely be the only book I ever write. And going back to the original intent of it, to, to help people realize that you can change your life for the better is the original intent 
And if I can do that moving forward with presentations, I, my, my goal is a, a public speaking presentation that includes music, includes a piano on stage. Uh, if I can help people, that will become my mission for the rest of my life, to be able to play my music and tell my story. Well, it is an important story, and you tell it very well. Thank you, Stuart. And on that, I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Michael Massey. Again, the book is more, available at your favorite local bookstore. I'll be back next week with another book about a musician with a problem, but one who tragically did not change his self-destructive ways, as I welcome back longtime friend of the show, Joel Selvin, for a conversation about his book, Sly and the Family Stone, an oral history. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shali Pittman, Engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, community radio.